Sorry about that. Hit the wrong button. <laughs> anyway, hey, welcome to this week's episode of Kuden Podcast. That's Jan Miller here for more of your concepts. Um, so um, anyway, talking about speaking of failure, <laughs> push the wrong button. Anyway, um, so that's the topic, right? Uh, controlling failure, as a matter of fact. Um, so as I was putting this episode together and, and trying to, I don't know, kind of flesh it out and, and uh, not have it be a duplicate of, of other things. Uh, <clears throat> what I really wanted to take a look at was uh, not only the inherent fear that, uh, in all honesty, most people have a failure, right? But where that kind of comes from uh, and how we were taught, right, that failing is bad and whatnot, but that's contrary to uh, the way super successful people tend to operate, right? Um, and if we think about, well, I mean, if we think about it from the concept of a warrior, right, failure, uh, what was it say in the Bible? The wages of sin uh, are death or is death. Um, and knowing that in that context, in Romans, right, sin is an archer's term, right? This is not a religious kind of thing, just borrowing a reference that a lot of people know. Sin is, was an old archer's term that meant to miss your mark, right? Um, of course, in combat, right, um, <laughs> if you miss often enough, well, you know, it's going to happen, right? Uh, but my teachers always said that the dojo was the place to make mistakes, Right. Um, and as long as you're, as long as the mistakes you're making aren't going to kill you, then you can manage things. Right? So I'm going to take a look at a couple of uh, frameworks from different aspects of our training, see what the enlightened masters say about things. And um, I don't know. We'll see where things go. Right. So all that and more as soon as we get back. So the big question is this. How are self-defense and success minded people like us? Concerned citizens worried about protecting ourselves, our loved ones, and the things we care about from the monsters we know exist in the world. How do we train in a way that gives us the skills, knowledge, and understanding we need without becoming paranoid fighters or killers ourselves, and yet still allows us to be the hero protector the world needs us to be? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Jeffrey Miller, and welcome to Kuden Radio, real training for real people in a real world. Okay, and we're back. All right, so this is the second episode for 2024. Our first one, of course, was actually on New Year's Day. Um, kind of a weird year getting started already. We had two back-to-back episodes of Kuden on holidays, right? Uh, the uh, We had one on Christmas of 2023, and then again, right, New Year's, because based on the Gregorian calendar, Days always fall the same way between December and January as far as calendar days go. So here we are. And then today, not ringing my own bell, not that it's a holiday or anything, but it's my freaking birthday. So um, yay me. Anyway, so uh, failure, right? Um, if we think about this concept or this context, um Failure is one of those inherent fears that we have. And I think it goes, uh, again, I have weird hobbies, right? But I think this goes all the way back to kind of the clan uh, mentality, right? We're a member of a small group, right? 
Um, we're certainly not at the top of the food chain. I mean, we're at the top of the food chain now, but way back in the day, right? Caveman days, all that kind of stuff, right? Not at the top of the freaking food chain. I mean, there were way bigger things, more ferocious things, right? You screw up, you take your attention off of things, you, you get eaten, right? So, um, you know, and then on top of that, right? Uh, I mean, humans banded together and still band together, right? There's that old saying, strength in numbers, right? So, you know, to, to be, uh, to make a mistake big enough, right, for the clan to kick you out, right, which was a huge thing way back in the day, right? Uh, and there's still some social groups, uh, religions, whatever, that have this idea of shunning, right, or excommunication or, um, you know, whatever, where you, you just, you're booted, right? Um, and there's this inherent fear in that kind of thing because now you're outside of the safety of the group. You need to figure it out for yourself. You need to survive on your own. Well, it's a good thing we're ninja, right? Ninja tend to operate um, in either very, very, very small teams or as lone wolves. And um, so it's it's a different mentality. But the fear that that must come from, right, that if I, if I screw up, if I fail, right, then what? Okay. Um, but in today's world, think about the way our social structure is set up, right? All the way back to even before we started going to school. I mean, school just exacerbated, uh, it just made the problem worse, um, by having a pass fail, uh, system, those kind of things, right? Um, well, at least when I went to school, we didn't get 50 chances to pass a test so that, uh, we could be moved on, um, you were lucky if a teacher gave you a chance to do a makeup test um, if you were sick and couldn't make it on a given day. Um, but even before that, right, there's this whole idea that, you know, if you don't get straight A's, you won't go to college. If you don't go to college, you won't be successful. If you're not successful, uh, you're going to starve and be homeless under a bridge somewhere or something. I mean, um, you know, just there's this whole stigma against failing. But like if you don't fail at something, how are you going to learn? And, and I get it, right? Teachers teach you the lessons and whatnot, but there's this there's this really weird thing because, um, like, for my kids, did I like it when I got straight A's? Of course, right? Did I like it when I got straight A's? Yeah. But what life has taught me is that there are certain – just based on the way we as individuals are wired and what we're attracted to and our learning types. I mean, some people are absolutely intellectual learning types. Other people are tactile learning types, right? I mean, they're just, they're hands on people, right? Other people, um, you know, are more abstract, more right brain. Um, some are more auditory. They need to hear something, process it. Other people need to see it, process it. Other people need to touch it, feel it. Um, school tends to be set up for those who are, or to get you to just be really good at the whole intellectual left brain functions, right? Uh, Budo's not that way, right? Um, are there things that you need left brain for? Yeah, of course, right? But there's also a need for tactile intelligence. There's also a need for kind of a subconscious feel, intuitive kind of intelligence, right? Um, which is why we always say body, mind, and spirit. But 
we're not trying to be vague with this, right? There's even in the teaching methods, right? Or the, the way things get transmitted, right? There's that three levels or three aspects of training, Taiden, Kuden, Shinden, right? There's body transmission. There's mind transmission, which is the psychological, strategic thinking, those kind of things. And then there's the Shinden, the heart to heart, right? That connection, that bond, that, that, again, intuitive feel, uh, kind of thing, that sensibility. Some people say common sense. Not only common sense, I think that's, that's a, I don't know. Common sense, I think, is a term that one ego made up to justify other people not knowing the same thing it does. Well, it's just common sense. Yeah, no. One, on one side, um, common sense isn't all that common, at least the, the kind of sense that people are talking about, right? Um, but it's also a presumption that because I know something, everybody else should, right? Because it's easy for me, then it should be easy for everybody else. And that's just bullshit. That's a height of bullshit, right? Um, but at the same time, common sense, right? This is what everybody knows. <laughs> well, if everybody knew the right way to do things, if everybody knew, uh, you know, everybody was enlightened, then they wouldn't have the problems that they have, right? They would... They wouldn't be bitching around the kitchen table. Okay? So anyway, um, but if we think about how this whole, uh, again, let me get back to the, to the, uh, the, we all have our own personal way of learning, personality, we're attracted to certain things or whatever. The reality is that for all of us, certain subjects just come more naturally. Right. So we're going to we're going to grade higher. Right? We're going to pass tests better, whatever in those subjects. Other ones, not so much. Right. So, you know, I always told my kids I'm not expecting straight A's. Not for moms didn't. But um, I don't expect straight A's. If you're bringing home a solid B, even a solid C, and you're working your ass off. And that's the best you can pull out because you're just having a hell of a time understanding this stuff. And whatever, but you know, you're passing, this is the highest grade, working your ass off and that's what you're getting, then I'm good with that. Now, if you're pulling home, if you're coming home with B, C's or worse or whatever, because you're just being lazy, you're not turning your stuff in, you're not applying yourself, then you and I have a problem. Yeah, because the, the trait for how to learn and the ability to learn and the willingness to learn are more important to me than the grade you got. Okay? So lazy begets lazy and the consequences, you know, whatever. So, um, but we have these different things, but there's this stigma, right? Um, the expectation that if you don't get this, then, right? If you don't come in, uh, what's that? That's that saying, uh, second place is, uh, first place loser, right? Those kind of things. I mean, it's just, seriously, right? And I, and I get it. I get competitions. I get those kind of things. But, you know, the, the thing I've learned over how many decades of having my academy. Let's see, I started my academy in 1989. So you do the math, right? Um, the people, adults and kids, that tend to do the best in this program. And I can't speak across the art because there's way too many variables. But the people that tend to do the best in 
my program at my school, the ones that I've interacted with, um, they're not typically competitive in nature like our group's doing better than your group kind of thing or I'm better than you or whatever. Um, the ones that tend to really excel are self-competitive. They're trying to be better today than they were yesterday. Um, you know, and it's it's all about themselves, right? And there's kind of this, you know, on more ongoing uh, kind of thing. But still, even with the best of us, and it took me a long time to to get a handle on these things because, you know, I was pinned down by the same stigma as well. You know, but there's this, there's a concept known as failing forward. Right? We've talked about this in the past with the foundations of, um, four foundations of, I'm going to call it success. It's called something different in Mikyo, uh, the four bases of transcendence transcendental wisdom, effort, that kind of thing, where, um, again, it's not desire to mindfulness, to effort, to study, investigation, or whatever. Um, it's desire to effort, to mind mindfulness, whatever, because we have to assume, well, we don't have to do anything, right? <coughs> but the wisdom teachings show, our Miko stuff points out, that we, when we want to do something, we're attracted to it, right? We think we know a lot about it, but a lot of that is wrong, right? We just don't know which parts of it are wrong, right? Because we can only see it from a distance. It's not until we jump in and start working with it that we realize, shit, this is hard, right? Oh, I thought it was this way, but it's this way, right? We're just coming out of a full weekend with our with our New Year's Night Homeoside uh, seminar, and it, it happened all weekend where, um, especially when we were doing Nimpo Taijutsu as opposed to Budo Taijutsu, right, where everything is hidden, right, that nothing is what it looks like, including the students, right? If it's obvious to you and you're brand new at something, then it's going to be obvious to everybody that you're ever going to face, so... If we understand that in Ninjutsu, nothing is ever what it looks like, then whatever I think my teacher is doing is probably 80, 90 percent wrong. Right? I'm going to have to figure that out because I'm watching what they're doing with their legs and their arms and their and their feet. They're stepping over there and whatnot. But I can't I don't know where the feeling is. I don't know what their mind is doing. I don't know what they're looking at, looking for. Right. I can't feel their balance, their attackers balance. I can't feel what they feel when they're touching their, their uh, partner and whatnot. So I got to figure a whole bunch of shit out, right? But I make an assumption based on watching a demonstration or three of a technique, right? And then we jump in trying to recreate something based on a two-dimensional visual reference. But how much do we not know, right? So, um, but we, you know, a lot of students we're having these little moments, these epiphanies, these moments of enlightenment or whatever, where they go, you know, they'd be working on something. Oh shit. I thought we were doing that, but it's this. Yeah. Right. So, um, anyway, right. So there's there these little things. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of these other frameworks as we go along, but there's this idea of failing forward that if we recognize that there's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that we think that we know, 
Right? It's easy to identify stuff. Well, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. Whatever. The hardest part is in is in accepting that a lot of stuff that we think we already know um, is either wrong or it's off or the way we're translating it is pointing us in a different direction or is falling short uh, or whatever, right? So, but the biggest thing I think that people have that that that, that stops most people is this concept of failure itself, right? This fear of I'm not going to make it. What if I'm not good enough? What if, what if the teacher uh, you know, what if I embarrass myself? The number of people that I've had, um, you know, they've gotten involved with training or their kids got involved with training or whatever. Um, and then, you know, we make a suggestion or I can see the the, the look of interest in their eyes uh, about them getting out and, and getting out on the floor and, and doing things. And they'll say or allude to, oh, yeah, I'm not going to embarrass myself or, yeah, I, I already know I'll screw up or Whatever. So they're not willing to put themselves out there because of the fear of failing or the fear of ridicule or what other people will say or think if they fail or whatever. I mean, you know, and and being again, I think a lot of this stuff is viscerally wired to the caveman. Right. Millions of years of evolution and a lot of what we're doing is still wired to the if I screw up. It's not going to go well, right? So uh, people tend to avoid things that they already know or they're not sure they're going to be perfect at up front. Well, of course not. You, just, you never did this before, right? But it can be really, really hard to to, to jump in there. And I don't, I don't know if I learned this along the way or if it was just an innate personality trait where I've always been attracted to that which I don't know. Because if I don't, if I don't at least try it, if I don't at least try to figure it out, then any amount of liking, disliking, or whatever is just going to be guesswork, right? And I, I don't like to not know. So it doesn't, maybe it's a control freak, but I don't think so. Um, because I don't try to rope people in. I don't try to manage things um, that aren't manageable or they're not my responsibility. Right. But there are certain things that if I bump into it, for instance, the mandala uh, in Mikyo, right? I remember the very first time I turned the page in a book. Right? It was actually on Nijutsu. Turn the page and there's this black and white photograph of one of the mandala or maybe it was two facing pages. I remember looking at one, but it might have been the two facing pages. But either way, it happened when I looked at the very first one. And part of me was like, wow. Like, I'd never seen anything like that. But there was another part of me that almost felt like I should know what that is. And there was a definite other part of me that had to know what this thing was all about. I don't know if you can if you can relate to that, but um, so there was this drive to know. And that's actually on the mandala. It's the, it's the entry point where students enter the mandala. So um, I don't know if the, those of you who are on live right now have the ability to do this, but uh, if you have a piece of paper, napkin, whatever, you have a pen, pencil, marker, crayon, you stab your finger and write with blood. I don't care, right? 
James knew that was coming. Um, can't, uh, hold on one second. I just realized that we don't have. Ta-da! There we go. All right, two ends up. Um, so if you if you have that ability, and you're listening to the recording, that's simple. Hit pause. Get a piece of paper and something to write with. Everybody else, you have to do this on the fly. Okay. Um, and some people I, I know actually listen in with Kuden or uh, Whiteboard Wednesday or whatever, and they already have a notebook set and ready to go. They show up as a student, which that's cool, right? For others, I get it, right? They show up, they're, um, they're showing up to engage, but they're kind of in listening mode, and then they'll go back later to the recording, right? Uh, two of my guys, actually, they came in long distance. were two black belts. Shidoshi had come in, um, and um, somebody else. They're both long-distance students in different programs. One was one of my Platinum Inner Circle guys. Lee, I don't know if Lee's on or not. Uh, and the other one is in a couple of the other programs, uh, Victor. But they had come in. They did a couple of breakout sessions for us and whatnot. Um, but uh, I can't remember which one said it. They sent me a, a message that, uh, you know, they they got a lot out of the weekend, but they already know they're going to have to go back through the recordings and go through them again because right, there, there was so much that, you know, they need to pull more out of. Which And that reminds me, those of you who... Uh, pre-ordered the recordings. Uh, James and I have already started moving those things around and, and uploading and whatnot. So um, it's going to be uh, a week or two um, because he has to edit and all those kind of things. As a matter of fact, James leaves on uh, for vacation on Saturday. So um, I don't know. We'll see what happens, right? James is going to get those things up as quickly as possible and, and set for everybody. But um, that's the plan, right? Give or take about a week. James, James is in the background. He's nodding. Okay. Okay. Don't winnie. Yeah, don't winnie. Right. Then you'll embarrass yourself. Anyway, so um but there was this there was this idea. But anyway, right. So but if you have the if you have the paper, you have the paper, pencil, uh, pen, marker, whatever, right? If you could make uh five circles, okay, and make form them in the form of a of a Roman cross. Okay. So put one in the middle, one above that, one below it one to the right of it and one to the left of it. I know I just did it based on my right and left. But either way, you should have basically a plus sign um, formed of five circles. Okay? And so based on the way the Kongokai mandala is, is oriented, okay, um, it's, it's not north at the top, right? Because these things are maps, but... Uh, north is actually to your right, uh, but that's the wind realm. So um, you can orient the rest of it if you need to. You really don't need the directions, um, but based on the Godai elements, wind is to the right, water's at the bottom, earth is to the left, fire's to, at the top, and void is in the center. Okay. Um, no, it's not in ascending order, right? And uh, it, but it's it's. Everything is relational. It's not static. Okay. So, but we're not, we're not looking at energy going from a solid, almost 
immovable based on perception, right? Immovable state, loosening up through fluid, going through kind of a combustible, uh, interactive, energetic, agitated kind of state to more of a loose, open, right? Nebulous kind of state to, to, you know, wide open kind of thing. Not looking at it that way. This is, there's a process that's mapped out here. Okay. So, uh, and again, I'll get back to failure here in a minute, but the, uh, the student, and I know we always say earth, water, fire, wind, and void, right? It's a basic way it's laid out when we're looking at, at that, the thing I just described with the way energy, you know, kind of is, goes from compacted and compressed to more fluid to more, uh, interactive again, agitated, things like that to more nebulous more cloud like to, uh, just, it's just, it doesn't even go to that. It, it goes inward, right? Cause you're looking at the, the, almost like the atomic structure, right? The, the, matrix that makes everything up so but anyway um what we're looking at is a process so this is this threw me off in the very beginning um but you just need to understand how the thing works so student actually enters the mandala in the water realm at the bottom okay because the water realm that realm right there is the realm of knowing and uh seeking knowledge right Seeking that which can be known, right? It's, there's this, there's this draw to know what, that which can be known, right? So it's the realm of the scientist, the realm of the researcher, the realm of the student, that kind of thing, right? And then they progress to the realm, uh, to the, to the, uh, to actually the south, but it's to your left, right? It's the circle on the left. That's the earth realm. And that's the realm of equanimity, right? The realm of equality where everything all information, all data, all kata, all skills, right, um, are of equal value, right, which could mean that they're no value at all, right. Um, that's the that's the level where we see things as content, right. I know this thing, I know that thing, or whatever, but there's no inherent value associated with them because the value comes out of context, right? If we're trying to solve a problem, if I'm trying to fix a cracked window, uh, let's say in one of the windows of my house, and a cracked pane of glass, right? Uh, probably not going to grab a screwdriver and a hammer, right? Um, I'm, I might use the screwdriver if I don't have a tool to remove the putty, the sealant that goes around it. If I have an old house. I have an old Victorian. So I don't have these new weathered kind of things in there um, where I can just slide it out, take it, give it to the folks and get a replacement and pot it back in there. Um, I'm going to have to take this, this glazing off or whatever the hell it's called to get the glass pane, the glass out of there. And I've already pre-ordered a new one that actually fits right back in there, put it back in, put the glazing compound back around it or the sealant or whatever put the thing back in the window, right? Hammer is not involved in the process at all, right? Because a hammer um, is probably going to cause more of a mess than anything else, right? So 
there's this realm of equanimity, right? So, okay, everything's equal. How do I know which technique? How do I know the value? How do I, uh, okay. Well, that's the next realm, right? At the top, the fire realm is the realm of discernment, right? So this is a psychological faculty of knowing what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Not dogmatically, not based on rules, not based on style, not based on, well, this is the way we do it. And this art and that's, that's everybody else is wrong. And not that kind of thing, right? It's based on assessing the problem, assessing the thing that I'm trying to solve, right? And then having the right, knowing that I have the requisite tool or skill or whatever in my toolbox. And I know how to properly apply that, right? Because people, lots of people like, lots of people like to gravitate to, to, um, favorite techniques. And then they just throw shit around like it's my favorite technique. I can't wait to use it. Okay. Um, but that may be that the technique may be the worst possible freaking option um, in that given situation. Okay. There's an old saying that um, if all you ever have is a hammer, then every problem is a nail or it has to be a nail because that's all you have. That's all you're used to. That's all you're good at. Right. So if a student is actually, studying to do more than just no stuff or show off or whatever, when they move to that realm of equanimity, that earth realm, that realm of value, then they, by, by nature, right, based on the enlightenment teachings, by nature, they have to give up the very concept or the need to have preferences or favorites. Because if I have preferences or favorites, I'm going to lean in that direction. And if that's the wrong answer to the situation that I'm in, then I'm going to screw myself. Right? This is a recipe for failure. Right? It's a recipe for for um, for disaster because right? I don't understand why I failed. I know how to do the technique. I'm really really good at the technique. Why did that fail me? Well, because the situation didn't dictate the use of that technique. Right? So. Right. Controlling failure, there's certain things that we want to do and there's certain things that we want to not do. Right? And I'll get to that in a minute because there's something, another thing that comes directly out of our Mikyo that points to the, the adding of things that produces more success and positivity and things like that. And there's the reduction, elimination and avoidance of a bunch of things that if they don't, if it doesn't guarantee failure, it's going to increase our odds of failure, right? And then we'll look at a way that this also manifests kind of in, in our training based on a framework uh, that I give my students. But uh, so we have this, right? So there's this value is based on situation. Well, how do I know how that works? Well, I have to develop this, this these discerning faculties, right, um, to know what's really right and what's really wrong, right? What is appropriate for the moment or inappropriate for the moment. So it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of appropriateness or inappropriateness based on where I want to be heading and the results I want to be creating. And then after that, right, the, the realm on the right, that wind realm, is the realm of all accomplishing action. It's the realm of skillful means. Right. Um, this is where Hatsumi Sensei and why well, Hatsumi Sensei is even beyond that, but 
where he was, and again, I'm saying was just because physically, tight end-wise, doesn't matter how good he was. Right? He's confined to a wheelchair at this point, or practically, right? Mind is still working really, really well, and the knowledge is still there, but there's certain, a lot of certain things that he's not able to, able to do. So, but this is the realm where the master is, where, uh, I'll give you a couple of, it, uh, for instance, is, and this, this kind of thing came up a couple of times during, uh, during the weekend while we were training. I told a couple of stories where, um, in Japan, and I'm in this Shihan's class or this Daishihan's class or whatever, and people need to pigeonhole techniques, right? So, teacher demonstrates something, Noguchi Sensei, whoever, right? They demonstrate a technique, and immediately people want to know, which lineage, which scroll, whatever. And uh, the teacher would laugh and go, doesn't matter. You can't do it anyhow, right? Um, you you want to know things that don't matter, but this is the product of being able to do this art and transcending it, right? Like in the Shuhari model, the, the ri or I, that kanji means to transcend. It means to go beyond the models, right? To go beyond the official state because you're a walking, talking embodiment of the principles and concepts of the lessons. So you should be able to make up new models and whatnot, and nothing violates the principles and concepts because everything is still as it should be, so to speak, right? But the beginner's mind is stuck on forms, right? Is this the right way? Sensei, is this right? Sensei, is this right? Is this official? Right. Um, if I do it this way, is that okay? You know, those kind of things. And it's right where they are because they want to make sure that they're on track. And that's cool. Right. But ego can get stuck on that. This is the only right way. This is the only, whatever. Right. So. Uh, but you get to a point where. You've learned a lot. You're still learning. You've got this repository of knowledge skills, techniques, right? You have this discerning mind, but it's that discerning mind that now takes over. So any situation you end up in, you can literally create the solution that's necessary in that situation without feeling confined to, is it right? Right? Am I, am I doing the style right? Am I whatever? Okay. Um, which is cool, right? And then, you know, where Hatsumi Sensei was in the, in the center there, that void, which is either pure potential, state of zero, which is, you know, a, a, the full-blown extension of that wind realm, or it's how he lived his life. Right? I, remember, I remember being in Japan one time, and I've told this story before, but was in Japan and he was talking about how expensive training was. Right? It's not free. It's not cheap. Right? It's expensive. Training is expensive. Right? And he unrolled three or four spear heads, spear tips that he had purchased. Right? In, in the wake of purchasing scrolls that he had found uh, from a now defunct, now dead lineage, right? It's warrior lineage. And they, you know, 
I'm going to just go defunct either because everybody gets killed off because they were wrong or um, or they Soke couldn't find somebody to pass things on to or they died before finding somebody. Right. And so family sells his stuff off or whatever. It ends up in a used book place or whatever. Right. So he found these these scrolls and he had been studying this particular lineages uh spear method and the way he described it was he got to a point in his training or in his work with this stuff and his study and his research where he couldn't break through to the next level because he didn't have the spears that they used right the descriptions and how to make them and and how this lineage spears were were designed and all that were in the scrolls, but he didn't have things that were, were that, that thing. So he dropped, um, the equivalent of $30,000 US on three or four of these spearheads. I know people are already like hard swallowing or their eyebrows went up or their eyes bulged or whatever, but I did lead off with him starting the conversation with how expensive your training and study is. Because what he was going to do the following week was, I think he was having poles fashioned or whatever out of the specific wood, the length and whatnot. He was going to have these things mounted, and then he could continue on with his study, right? So here's the grandmaster of our art, the person that everybody assumes already knows everything, who's in the water realm of another phase of their, of what they're researching and studying. Okay. Because this is a process, right? It's like a, it's like a, it's like a helix. It's like a, like a, a spiral, right? So we start in the water realm and we move around, but as we go, we're actually like elevating, right? We go around this thing and we hit center, but all that means is that we become enlightened about that particular thing that we started studying, right? And now we've got something else. So every skill, every technique, whatever, we're doing that thing, but there's nothing to say you can't come back to that skill again and take it to the next level and take it to the next level and take it to the next level, okay? But often causes a lot of people to quit, fail, right, is that, they always do things, and this came up during the weekend as well, they keep doing the same shit the same way all the time. And one of the things that will set in is boredom because they feel like they're just, I've done that before. I've done that before. I've done that before. I know that. I already know that. Shit, that technique again? Oh, come on, man. If I have to do this technique again, I'm going to throw up. Well, then throw up and get back, get your ass back in, in class. Okay? Because they're not looking for new things. They're making an assumption. This is a recipe for failure as well, right? Um, regardless of how long somebody stays in, right? It's kind of like the person who, uh, you know, is working on the job. They work in a factory and a job opening comes up and they've been with the company for 20 years. And there's another guy that's been with the company for six months. And everybody always tell, you know, they always tell the guy with six months, you're not going to get it, dude. They're going to give the job to the guy with 20 years experience. But does the guy with 20 years with the company have 20 years of experience? Or did he stop learning or applying himself or trying to uh, elevate himself or 
you know, whatever, six months in. So does he really have 20 years of experience or 20 years of knowledge, or does he have six months of experience 40 times? Okay? Where the guy that's been on the job for six months has been going through correspondence courses, it, you know, they just keep adding on to things and stuff, and they're constantly learning. Right? Um, it's not the same. Right? It's not the same. Um, but it is what it is, right? So... I'm going to pause at this point because we're going to jump into uh, this this idea of controlling failure and this failing forward and controlling the process um, much more in depth. I, I've got a model, like I said, I have a model from Armikio, uh, mind science side of things, which is easily applied to anything you're working on. And then we're going to make it more specific to... Uh, the self-defense, self-protection paradigm that, you know, our martial stuff is, is designed for um, and a framework that I give students. And both of these are frameworks that I give students um, to make it a little bit more clear, right? Hopefully make it a little more clear, right? So, um, James, who's on? I've seen the numbers go up. I've seen the numbers go down, whatever. Um Who's on? Questions, comments, complaints. Hey, look, it's James. Uh, Dave Fletch is on. Victor. Dave. Jared. Trinity. James T681. Jimmy. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, evenings. awesome. Florida, or Florida, yeah, <laughs> Victor. And... Trinity, James C six eighty one, Dave pretty much everybody also said happy birthday. Oh, well thanks. Appreciate it. Um happy birthday to you too. I hate that idea. You have one birthday, right? It's an anniversary. Right? I was born on this day back in eighteen forty no. Um <laughs> so um cool. Uh I'm glad that everybody that came to Dicomio side made it home okay. I heard Victor had a little bit of a layover. Um, he posted something about the the looks on people's faces and all grumbling and stuff. And I'm sure a bunch of them made it the fault of the airlines because, you know, Mother Nature did what Mother Nature did. But, you know, you should somehow be able to negate Mother Nature. And that's another one. We'll have to come up with a topic on that at some point because... Human the, the human history is rife with philosophies, ideologies, and attempts at scientific breakthroughs and whatnot to, instead of working with nature, which is what our art's about, right, understanding nature, working with it, um, understanding those principles and concepts, it's to negate, control, or dominate nature. And I don't know if you noticed or not. But uh, we're on a ball floating through space. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, and you know what? The winds and the hurricanes <laughs> don't give a shit about your belief system. <laughs> so, anyway, all right. Uh, okay, so let me just check my notes here, make sure I didn't skip over anything. Okay, so one of the things I want to point out was the Enlightenment Frameworks. And again, I don't care if it came through our Budo um, 
traditions or the Mikio traditions and in many aspects, right? They're intertwined. And I know there's a lot of people that, that don't want to look at Mikio. They don't want to look at uh, some of these other things, but Takamatsu Sensei was a Tendai priest, right? He, he was an abbot. He ran a Tendai um, uh, temple, right? So, hmm, interesting, right? I want to do it traditionally. I only want to do it the way Hatsumi Sensei and Takamatsu Sensei and whatever did it. Really? No, apparently not. Right? So, and how traditional do you want to get? Because I've seen letters from certain masters and leaders and whatnot that have offered to send young boys as gifts. I don't know about you, but there's some things in the tradition. Uh, that's not me. So not because it's not so there it was socially acceptable, but that's not a me thing. So um, anyway, so the enlightenment frameworks do two things, right? They're, they look like they're opposites of each other, but they do both at the same time. One, the omote, the frontal part of things is they focus on the achievement of success, right? Do these things to progress forward, to be more successful, to produce, you know, positive results, to be successful, to be the guy or girl standing and they're not whatever. Right. But at the same time, there's also this Uda, this backside, which is to control failure. Okay. Um, one of the things that um, the, the folks that are going through the realm of the tactical warrior program right now are module two in our uh, black belt training program. Uh, they've been through a, a, a training drill called uh, Senundo, right? which is just this moving from Kamai to Kamai, maintaining um, the, the benefits of Kamai right? while they're evading. Um, but they're going to have to start looking at the fact that things are rough and raw under pressure. And so while the ideal is right, hitting your naname, your, your proper angling, Call it 45 degrees, call it 30, call it whatever you want. Um, while that's the ideal, sometimes, <laughs> often, right, you're going to miss it. You're going to be too sideways and you're, you're going to recognize, shit, my targets are, are available. Or you're going to go too straight back and you're not in a good alignment with him. You're going to run right into his defenses or whatever, right? So uh, coming up, in a couple of weeks, we have um, the next phase up from the baby steps in that drill where we're going to show you how, when, you're when you realize you've made the mistake, how to get back on the right angle on the fly, right? So you don't keep making the same mistake. You don't keep exposing things uh, the same way. And that's, that's one of those things, right? Failure is inevitable, and failure could be everything from – you know, most people think of failure as, right, I mean, it's all over, right? But sometimes failure is just, it's, I missed my mark. I, I missed this little thing, right? I just, it was not quite what I needed it to be, right? Um, and so I just need to adjust on the fly. I just need to keep moving and make that adjustment, right? Uh, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but 
uh, my four-year-old grandson, from the time I brought him home, or I didn't bring him home, but his mom brought him home from the hospital, the first time we got him, uh, he was at my house and just this little thing, right? Um, got this chair in my home office and flipped on the TV and stuff. And um, I turned on Looney Tunes, right? A lot of action, a lot of movement, that kind of thing. He was able to see things. Um, at four years old now, he can, he can, uh, it's not, I guess it's not really singing because there's no words to it, but he can do the, the music and the sounds of the Looney Tunes thing. He knows, he knows how to do that thing. But anyway, started off with, you know, liking Daffy Duck and Donald, uh, Donald Duck. No, not Donald Duck. Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, those kind of guys. Um, but, uh, now the character of choice is Wiley Coyote. Right. Wiley Coyote. Genius. Right. So one of his phrases is Wiley Coyote is not a genius. Right. He keeps messing up. So he's only four at this point. Um, but as he gets older, there's a lesson there with the Wiley Coyote thing that maybe isn't what they originally intended. But it's OK. It's there that I need to make sure that he gets. OK. And it has nothing to do with Wiley Coyote, you know, getting what he deserves because the Roadrunner's the good guy and he's the bad guy and he's trying to, well, you know, Stellan's old enough at four to wonder if Wiley Coyote keeps missing the Roadrunner, what does he eat? How is he still alive? How is he not starved to death at this point? Right? He's a smart kid. Okay. But. What he sees at this point is that Wiley Coyote's not a genius because his his inventions keep failing, right? But what I need for him to see is how much thinking and effort and whatnot Wiley puts into these things, these contraptions, right? These roadrunner traps. It's just a mouse trap, you know, on whatever scale. But the problem is dead-end thinking, right? Um, and it's something that we're all guilty of, right? I'm still guilty of this stuff. And, and I, you know, probably in areas that I can't even see yet, which is why I keep going to see teachers and dropping $4,000 every time I do a, a trip to Japan um, because of all the study and research that I do while I'm there. And, um now, that doesn't mean that a trip with me to Japan is $4,000. That means that's how much I tend to drop, depending on the exchange rate. Um, but the, the amount of wasted time, effort, energy, resources, because he's always buying stuff, stuff from the Acme company, right? And apparently the Acme company sells more than Walmart does or more different things or Lowe's or whatever, because there's nothing he can't buy from the Acme company, right? From rocket sleds to glue to whatever. But the amount of waste, because he creates the plan, he builds the stuff, it fails. And in the next scene, he's doing what? Something completely different. Instead of recognizing the rope broke. Well, 
I either bought inferior rope or I didn't buy, I didn't check the weight properly that I was going to need, right? Uh, pulley failed, whatever. What failed? The whole thing didn't fail. Something messed up, right? So I just upgrade or update that piece and go at it again, right? Now, from an entertainment standpoint, I get it. Most people, you know, wouldn't be watching those cartoons if Wiley e. Coyote did 20 iterations of the same thing until he caught the Roadrunner. Because the point of the cartoons aren't for him to catch the Roadrunner. But I need for Stellan to see that this is not a one and done pass or fail kind of thing. Right? He's putting this thing out there. And this is, this is something that all uber, uber, uber successful people do. They very quickly, right? It's speed to execution. Get this thing out there because I don't start getting feedback until it's out in the real world. Okay. I put a small program together or an ebook or whatever and I toss it out and I see how many people jump on it or if they ask questions about it or well, that one's cool. Um, have you ever thought about doing one like this? No, but that's a really good idea, right? Like this dichomiosi, um, we didn't have a, t- a T-shirt to go along with it, right? Well, Sunday, one of the students of the school, Christy, right, she comes in Sunday morning, and I said, wow, you survived a Sunday, right? She's done the whole weekend. And she goes, yeah, um, have you thought about, you know, designing a T-shirt, I survived Dicomiosi 2024, and then having some imagery of some of the lessons that we've learned, like a compass and some of these other things. And I said, no, but that's a cool little jingle. She goes, well, if you did one, I'd, I'd buy it. Well, you know, I'm not going to do one off just for one person. I mean, she could design one and go through an online T-shirt thing or whatever and, and get one. Um, so I just, you know, we started classes and I said, hey, you know, Christy had this idea. If we were to do a limited run on these things and it would only be available to those people who were in on the training, um, who would, who would grab one, right? Everybody's hands went up. Okay. Now, right, I can commit to, let's see what I just did, right? Got this idea, threw this idea back out to see what the response would be before I expend a whole lot of time and effort in producing something that might have only been a good idea to me, right? So, um, and while that sounds kind of, oh, well, you're only looking to make money from a, well, um, if I'm not breaking even on the services that I pay for, even when I'm producing free stuff like this, right, um, you know, then, and hopefully a little bit more, then I'm I'm backing up, right? I'm becoming poor to give people value right i don't have a printing press printing money in the basement of my house or in the dojo dojo doesn't have a basement so kind of precludes that one right but anyway it was just this neat little kind of idea that came out but i need to make sure that that stellan understands that value is a part of the game right there's a whole bunch that you don't know and you won't know until you toss it out there right um now, there's ways to shortcut the system, right? You can learn from other people's mistakes, other people's successes, which is why we buy books, right? Uh, but I got re-interested in fishing a couple of years back. 
right? I decided what fish I, w- I wanted to go after, right? I tend to like uh, bass because they they fight more, right? There's more to the to the sport and all that. And I'm, I'm a catch and release kind of guy, but either way, right? There were certain things I wanted to catch, so I bought a couple of books, right? And it wasn't just about bait. It wasn't just about tackle and gear and whatever. It was how to read the water, um, what times of day do they typically feed in certain types of environments. Uh, if I'm in rivers or, or smaller tributaries or uh, larger bodies or whatever where they, they live, um, how do I know in certain regions what their primary food source is? Because that's, that's the best bait to use, right, as opposed to guessing. Right. So but those books that I'm reading are were written by people who are really good at that and that that's what they know. So I can borrow from that. It reduces my chances of failure. Right. It's one way to control failure. But ultimately, I'm going to have to get out there and do it for myself. Right. And because that's my way of testing whether or not I understand it. So anyway, um, but these frameworks have on both sides. Okay. Ego tends to only want to look at the achievement of things. Um, it doesn't want to consider, consider the failure parts because, you know, if I understand it, then I'll be fine. There won't be any failure. Well, my teachers always told me that you can stop worrying about getting punched in the face or stabbed or shot or whatever um, in a fight. Right. Now that you're training, you can stop worrying about those things. Let me assure you that you will be punched in the face. You will be stabbed. You will be shot or whatever. Because your job is not to not have those things happen. Your job and the training is to keep those things from happening to the extent that the TV gets turned off. Okay? So, because the reality is we're all easy to kill. Just because we're doing warrior training doesn't mean we can't be killed. Just because we're on the side of morality and the good guy and whatever doesn't mean the thug can't kill us. Right? Training does nothing more than increase our odds of survival, not to make us invincible. I'm sorry if that's bad news to anybody, but that's just the way it is, right? So training and the willingness to train correctly or whatever, right? Just wanting to jump in there is the need to control failure. Now, if I'm only training for belts and I'm only training for accolades and impressing my friends and all that, then I'm only looking at, right, that's my that's my litmus test for success, Okay. I'm only going to bump into failure is if I've done all this stuff, I've put in all the work, and I'm not impressing the people I want to impress. See, now I'm going to be disappointed. Well, disappointment's a type of failure. It's a sensation of that didn't work out. Okay, but anyway, all right. So let's take a look at one framework, and this is in Mikio. Let me get a quick drink here because my throat's drying out. Okay, so. In our Mikyo study, uh, there's a framework called the four right efforts. Okay, this is an uh, this is an obvious example of both sides, omote and ura, the achievement of success and the controlling of failure, in one model. When I say obvious, I mean it's just spelled out. Right, you don't have to look for it. Right, when we get to this other framework, maybe not so much. Okay, so in this one, the four right efforts are to generate the positive. Okay, that's number one. Number two is to increase the positive. Number four is to reduce or eliminate the negative. And the last one 
is to avoid the negative. Okay? So here's the logic of it. Well, the whole logic of it is, remember that Nikyo, the whole foundation of Nikyo is about the, uh, the f- freedom or getting past or, uh, breaking free from the shit that life throws at you. Okay. It's called, in, in Sanskrit, it's called dukkha, right? And that even sounds like shit, right? Dukkha, right? But dukkha, it's just, it's another one of these words that in English is really, really, really difficult to translate. So dukkha could be actual physical pain, that kind of suffering, mental suffering and anguish, frustration, confusion, disappointment, a whole bunch of things, right? Um, what it basically comes down to is um, not getting that which you want the way you want it, having to endure things or put up with things or deal with things that you don't want to have to put up with, whatever, right? Um, so there's lots of ways to do that. But the whole idea is if I eliminate to the greatest degree the amount of suffering, frustration, confusion, all that kind of stuff, ad infinitum, if I reduce as much of that as possible, I will experience a more positive life. My experience of life, right, will be deeper, broader, more elevated, whatever, right? It's, it's just, it's going to be more positive, okay? So if we look at this framework to generate more positive, means to to add more positive to my life, right? Now, this doesn't count for the stuff that I'm already doing that produces positive. That's actually number two. This is, right, looking around at things and go and going, that looks like it'd be really cool. Awesome, okay? For us in, in with Budo training, right, if training makes me feel good, releases the endorphins, Right. I feel like I'm growing. I'm getting interactions with teachers who are helping me, uh, you know, to learn new things that I never knew before. Right. If that's the jazz, if that's what gets me, you know, high on life or whatever, then um, great. But if I'm already doing it again, that's number two. But it's those things that I've always wanted to do. Right. Well, then get started. Go do that thing you've always wanted to do, right? It's going to increase the positive. I'm now doing more things that remind me that life is cool, that being alive is, is, is a worthwhile thing, right? Um, it's breaking the stagnation, right, of same shit, different day, okay? So I'm just going to do more cool shit. Right. Number two is I'm already doing things that I like. So back to training. Right. Um, you know, going to seminars, interacting with my teacher, uh, practicing on my own, whatever. I, I like doing that stuff. Cool. Then do it more often. Well, you understand. I've got, you know, ah, we'll get to that one. That's what three and four are all about, especially number three. Okay. So 
Number two is there's things that we already knew know do it for us, right? There's certain activities, there's certain things that we engage in, whether it's reading or, like I said earlier, fishing or uh, training or whatever, right? So number two is about increasing the positive. So the stuff I already enjoy, I'm going to make time to do more of it, right? Because it's by its very nature, I already know. I feel good when I do that thing. I feel good when I'm around that person or those people. Well, then I'm going to make time to be around that person or those people, right? I'm going to make time to do that thing. I'm going to, I'm going to do it more. Or maybe I can't do it more as in, you know, I only have, who knows, right? Maybe I can do it an extra day during the week or because I don't have an extra day to slip it in, then, okay, you know, I practice for a half an hour. Maybe I can extend that half an hour to 45 minutes or I can double up to an hour, right? I'm just, I'm going to increase that thing. Or maybe I'm just going to think about it. I'm going to do the, the visualization more. So I'm thinking about it more. I'm buying books and popping them on the shelf. My wife has a saying. She says, how many books do you need to buy that you already don't have the time to read? I don't know. I'll let you know when, when I guess, on my deathbed, because uh, James and I, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you, but we have a library that's friggin' huge, um, individually, of course, right? But um, two things go on with me. One, um, I'm always worried that a book is going to go out of print because it's not going to be interesting enough to enough people that the publisher is going to make a profit, and therefore, if I don't know it exists – then when am I going to bump into it again? Two, if it goes out of print, I have to wait until people start selling off their copies because that's how it ends up in used bookstores, right? Whatever. But I'm going to snatch this thing up, okay? Um, I may not have the time to read it now, but there will be moments, okay? Broke my back in the hospital for, what, week and a half, two weeks. Then, it, you know, it was kind of slowed down. Um, at home as I was doing recovery and whatnot. So guess what I did? I got caught up on a whole bunch of reading. Sometimes I don't buy a book for the whole book. Sometimes I buy a book because it's reference material for later on. I'm doing a seminar and I'm going to do a session on, who knows, Onikodaki. I'm going to do a session on uh, certain types of uh, Japanese military history or something, right? So, oh, that book, that book, and that book have those kind of things in it scattered throughout or in a given chapter or whatever. I don't have to read the whole damn book. I just go through it, whatever, okay? Or I know it exists. Maybe I can pop on Described or some of these other services and see if they have it in PDF format or there's a Kindle version or whatever, right? So I'm just, you know, just going to do more of it, right? Because I get jazzed when I'm doing it, right? That's something I'm super interested in. So, I'm going to increase my the, the, the amount of time I'm doing things that I enjoy, right? Then number three is um, reducing or eliminating the negative. I understand, Sensei. I don't have enough time. Family pulls at me. Well, okay, great. What can you eliminate? Well, like I can't kill my family. Well, I didn't ask you to kill your family. I didn't ask you to walk away from your family either. Huh? 
But what could you eliminate? Scrolling on your phone after everybody else has gone to sleep uh, when you could be doing the reading or you could be getting up and practicing your sanji or whatever. It's at the end of the day and I'm tired. Well, I can't help you. Okay. I'm not here to do it for you. I'm just here to point out what's worked for me. Okay. Um, but I want to reduce, I want to eliminate as much as possible that just drags me down in life. I mean, there's certain things that you just can't get away from, right? Cause you have responsibilities, but there's a bunch of other things that we've created as responsibilities or we've saddled ourselves with, or we think it's a habit that we can't get rid of, or we think it's something that we absolutely must do or whatever. Right. Um, how much of that can you eliminate? Right? Honestly, how much can you eliminate? And then that which you can't eliminate, can you reduce it? And to what degree? You won't know until you try, right? Because the more I eliminate and the more I reduce, two things happen. One, I'm having less of the dukkha, right? Frustration, confusion, pain, whatever, that comes along with that. And simultaneously, I've increased the amount of time I have available to do the shit I really want to be doing that makes me feel awesome, okay? And then four is just avoiding shit that you know is just a bad idea, okay? I don't currently have it going on in my life or whatever, but that that doesn't get a chance to creep in, okay? This is how I vet potential friendships, potential teacher-student relationships, all kinds of stuff. I just don't take on the things that are going to cause me to, you know, a student that expects me to work four times harder than them because of all of their issues. You don't understand. I'm a slow learner. I'm a, nah, 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 I need you to, I know what you need, but yeah, no, that's not the way it works. Okay. What you need is to find a teacher who needs students or needs disciples or needs to be the center of attention who's willing to be the dancing monkey to jump through hoops and loops for you because they need you actually more than you need them. That would be a great codependent relationship. Okay? But any teacher that is an independent, stand on their own two feet kind of person who selects dependent and codependent relationships based on partnerships and temporary uh, projects and, and things like that, right? My wife and I, right? We're married, but we're two very, very strong independent people, right? Who would be perfectly fine alone in the world doing our own thing. We're in a relationship because, because of significance and connection, not because we need a replacement for uh, somebody who cooks, somebody who cleans, somebody who, uh, is spackling in the, in the cracks that, you know, whatever, right? So do we depend on each other? Yeah. Not the same way all the time. Are we codependent? In as so much as the marriage has produced certain things that you know, she pays certain things, I pay certain things, and I'm, you know, we depend on the other person fulfilling their, you know, agreed upon responsibilities and stuff. That's all cool. Okay. But it's not the same as, you know, 
one person always being dependent upon the other person for one particular thing or codependent where we can't back up away from each other. We'll both fall on our face. Okay. So anyway, um, so that's, that's, a, that's a very obvious framework, right? You want more positive, you want more energy, you want more whatever, then do more that produces that, that you're not already doing. Do the things that we're going to produce more of that, right? The things that you are already doing or have done but maybe slacked off on, do more of those things. You already know it's going to produce the end result, right? The things that you don't want to have to deal with or put up with, reduce or eliminate as much as possible and avoid other things, right? Have, have very clear boundaries so that the shit that you know, right? Like drugs are bad for you. Great. Okay. I mean, that's a huge obvious kind of thing, right? So. No, that's easy. But what about the other things? Right? Because some people, you know, um, they don't they don't make friends easily. So they wait until other people connect with them and then they live by the somebody's better than nobody at all thing. So that's not vetting, because now you they're, they're probably not good at conflict either, so they're not going to tell an energy vampire or somebody who is, you know, not only self-destructive, but just manipulative, abusive, whatever, in their relationship. They're not going to t- take, the, they're not going to tell them to take a walk or pound pavement, right? Because here they are, right? It might make them go away. At least I've heard abused people tell me, when I've asked, why don't you just tell them to go or you walk and, you know, find somebody else? Well, see, the somebody else is an unknown, and at least with this person, I know what to expect. So what you're telling me is the the known evil is better than the potentially positive unknown. Interesting, right? So... That I can't fix. That's that's a personal development kind of thing. But at least at a, at a very base level, this framework shows you, right? On the same time, right? On the Omulte side, for the achievement of success, do these positive things, avoid these negative things, or eliminate them, right? And you'll have more success. At least you'll have a more positive, vibrant life going on, right? And if you want to control or avoid failure, apply what you know, keep moving forward, be productive, those kind of things, and avoid the things that you know are destructive towards success, right? So that's that's kind of the, the obvious side of things, right? Um so before I jump into this this last one, um, James, any comments or questions or anything that popped in? No, sir. Nobody's put anything in. All right. Okay. So um, for a lot of you that are are my students, long distance or close up, right? 
uh, in Mod 1, we gave you this framework, these uh, eight phases of effective self-defense strategy. The long form of it, which I just don't put in the title, is eight phases of effective self-defense strategy and training. Okay? Because there are eight aspects of training that produce skills and techniques and uh, strategic thinking, tactics, the whole deal, for being able to handle things in these given phases. Okay? The whole thing is self-protection. The whole thing is self-defense. Unfortunately, most people tend to gravitate toward phase six, which is physically ducking the punches, the knives, the bullets, and all that. You know, the phase where the greatest chance of something going wrong happens, right? Um, but this is, this framework has both of these things going on at the same time, okay? This framework is both a recipe for success in resolving a dangerous situation, right? A self-defense situation. But it is also a framework for controlling failure. Okay? So the eight phases, for those of you who don't know them, and again, for those of you who have been around for a long time, right? I apologize. I've got to get everybody else caught up. Okay? So, um, Phase one is general awareness. General awareness is just knowing the danger exists in the world. Um, it might touch me, might touch somebody that I care about, right? So it starts there, but it also includes what types of danger? What does that look like? Right? It's all the back homework kind of thing. What's the problem or what different types of problems might I have to deal with, right? A lot of people skip right over this thing. They just jump into a martial arts or self-defense program, just learn the skills and lessons um, because that's what the teacher is teaching. And they either ignore their experience of what freaking shit looks like in the world, or they have no clue what it is, and they're just taking somebody else's word for it. So now, if, if, if this were the, I'm going to buy a bunch of tools to put in the toolbox for work or home repair, I have no idea if these tools, uh, if I'm going to need these or uh, whatever, but I feel good because I've, you know, I got a toolbox and I got tools. Okay. What are you most likely to run into? Right. So at least first, right. But anyway, that's general awareness, right? It's the information gathering stage. It's knowing what it is that you're trying to solve. Okay. When I came to, uh, this art, when I came to any art, right? I, I knew exactly what I, what I had to deal with because of the physical, mental, and emotional abuse. So it wasn't always just, I wasn't worried about just being hit, right? There was a whole bunch of shit going on, right? Name calling, uh, emotional degradation, all kinds of shit, right? So that kind of stuff in, in my home growing up, School bullies, you know, the harassment, different phases of bullying, physical, mental, emotional, the whole deal. So I knew what I was looking for, right? My The unfortunate part for me, and it wasn't that I didn't learn anything from these other arts. I did, right? A lot of people think that the Buddha didn't learn anything until he sat down under a tree and discovered things for himself. But he had three teachers before he did that, and they all got him to 
a next level kind of thing, right? So, but the unfortunate thing for me was that most, well, not most, everything I encountered before I got into this art was, if it wasn't 100% physical, it was at least 90% physical. And then there was some psychological things thrown in, but it was just lip service. And then anything that was emotional or personal development was like a side effect. Right? It wasn't controlled. The, the teacher wasn't helping with it um, other than it being kind of, you know, confidence developed on its own or whatever. Right. So. Uh, but anyway, right. Knowing what it is. So because I had that. That. This is what I'm looking for. When I encountered this stuff, I, I knew it very quickly. What I didn't know before I found Ninjutsu was that the thing I was looking for was called Ninjutsu. So a lot of people start out looking for a martial art because their brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, college roommate told them that that was the best thing that was out there. Or the media told them this is the most effective martial art or TikTok videos or whatever. And then they go looking for that thing. So, but they're not looking for it. They're looking for it because somebody else said it was the best, but the best for what? The best to turn you into a fighter, the best to turn you into, you know, somebody that can uh, beat up somebody else and get a trophy or a belt or a check within the confines of an octagonal space or what's the best for? Okay. The best for me was surviving that and being able to become the opposite of these negative role models. Okay. It's a very different paradigm, right? So anyway, general awareness, right? What's the problem? And then phase two is situational awareness. It's what most people think of when they think of awareness to begin with. Okay. So, um, you know, anyway, it's, it goes way beyond just paying attention to what? Okay, knowing what the cues and clues are when it comes to danger manifesting. So what does it look like when somebody's starting to pick, they pick you and they're starting to come at you? Great. What's it look like just before that? What's it look like just before that? What's it look like just before that? Right. To the point where you can see danger manifesting farther away from you so that by the time it comes into the area where you used to be standing, you're nowhere around. Okay? Because then that leads into phase three, which is escape to safety. Okay? So ninja were really good at escaping to safety, right? Rolling behind the bush, parked car, disappearing from sight, whatever. Or, again, I'm going to disappear long before it ever gets to me because I saw shit starting to brew, and nah, I'm not going to be a part of this mess. Check, please. Let's go, baby. We're leaving. Right? Um, or being able to, right, just... Get away from the person. So early in my career, right, there was climbing skills. There were vaulting and all kinds of broken field running and all kinds of wild, crazy ninja skills and things, right? But as I transmuted this stuff from individual self-defense into being able to help companies, organizations, uh, mom's groups, whatever, who were looking for 
women's self-defense, protecting their families, workplace violence uh, in a factory or office setting, workplace violence prevention and mitigation in a healthcare set, whatever, right? I had to be able to form this stuff in a way that allowed people to not only evacuate and escape, but there also became this recognition that sometimes you can't escape physically from the space. But what you can escape from is you can become invisible because you're not on their sight line. You're not in the obvious places they'll be looking as they're moving through looking for targets to shoot. Whatever, right? So there's this whole other aspect. There's this whole other um, way of looking at escaping to safety, right? Understanding the difference between cover and concealment, right? One hides me from view. The other one will probably hide me from view. Not necessarily. There are exceptions, right? But it'll stop a bullet, okay? So that's escaping to safety, right? I'm untouchable in plain sight. And then when I can't do that, right? So again, most self-defense systems, most martial arts systems jump right to the conclusion that there's nothing you can do, man. You better be able to start ducking punches and whatever from the get-go, right? And again, that's exacerbated or it's, or it's, it's pushed by the narrative in the sports arena where both people get in, they shake hands, bump gloves, bow, whatever the hell it is to start it, and then somebody says go, and the fight starts. I mean, shit, that's like Scotty on the Starship Enterprise beaming you both down into a space, and as soon as you both materialize, you're just going to start slugging, right? Meanwhile, unless it was a surprise attack, there's a whole bunch of shit leading up to things, and we have way more opportunity to, uh, to resolve this, to make it go away, to protect ourselves, right? to mitigate the situation before we get to the point where it's the, the chances of shit going sideways just are just way high, right? Cause again, we're easy to beat, break or kill the human body as strong as it is, as adaptable as it is, it's also easy to kill, right? We got squishy parts inside that if they get hit too hard or pierced, right? We die. Shut down really, really quickly, right? So, and it was proven to me when I was, I don't know, somewhere between six and eight years old when my stepdad punched my mom uh, in the ribs and broke a rib and that rib sliced up her spleen. He didn't have to actually stab the spleen. Broke the rib, her moving around and falling down steps took care of the rest, right? So maybe, maybe I just... No, not maybe. I had to re, I had to change my perspective to realize what kind of gifts these were to me. That I got these lessons early, albeit very, very negative lessons. But I didn't walk into training blind any more than a student that I had, uh, Orain. Orain, uh, lives in this country. I think he lives in Connecticut. Um, he moved here from Jamaica when he was uh, much younger, but he was, I can't remember how old he was, close to 20, give or take, a couple of years in there. And he was walk, walking home from work. He was walking to a bus stop, and three guys jumped him 
and stabbed the shit out of him and left him for dead. Right? And when he went looking for martial arts, same thing. He had a very clear vision about how bad things could be and what he was looking for. Right? And it wasn't learn these techniques and hope for the best. Right? He was looking for very, very specific things. Because having been in that situation, he knew that it wasn't just a physical attack. There was psychological shit going on, things that they were saying to him or whatever to get him confused and, and scared and whatnot. Shit going in, you know, through his mind and, and thoughts and things like that. And then the emotional overwhelm and whatnot. It's a very different thing. Now, he's extremely lucky that he survived to be able to look for the right things. But going through the training and just, well, before he even got the training, bumping into how many of my uh, articles, because I wrote, I wrote a whole bunch of articles long before I was doing all this video stuff on YouTube, right? I mean, I've got, what, five or 600 articles out there circulating on the, on the internet. Um, some short, some long, whatever. Um, but he knew what he was looking for. Again, didn't have a brand name for it, right? Tic-tac-toe, whatever it is. I don't need a brand name. I know what I'm looking for, and I know what I know it when I see it. Okay, this is not a political decision. This is a necessity decision. It's no different than going to Lowe's or whatever hardware store. I've got a problem. I got a leaky faucet at home, and there's a specific tool that I need. There's a certain process and approach that I need to take to fix it, so that my house doesn't get flooded. And the flooding doesn't get <laughs> exacerbated because I went and bought a sledgehammer. I'll fix that leaky faucet. I'll just knock the damn thing off. That'll fix it. Right? So <coughs> anyway, so what we have is two de-escalation phases. Um, if I can't escape and the attack's not physical attack's not already coming and I have the opportunity, right? So de-escalation phase one is uh, distraction, right? So at this point, I'm not even letting this guy know that I know that he means to do me harm. If I have the ability to distract him and seem like I don't even know I'm in danger, right? I don't push him. I don't ramp his intensity level up because I'm not being confrontational, right? I'm you know, I could be doing anything from faking a freaking heart attack to, uh, you know, making a joke or whatever, right? Um, being distracted by something else and wandering off, right? So the, it, it's just a, what I'm trying to do is get his mind off of either violence or his mind off of me. And I'm not doing that by confrontation. I'm doing it by distraction, right? I mean, this is needed to, right? This is needed to. How do I make this? How do I manipulate the situation? Right? It's one of the one of the eight gates of the ninja. Ninja no uge, deception, manipulation, influence, whatever. Right? I mean, it's it, this is one of the most it's one of the most critical skills. How do we know that? Well, it's in the freaking eight levels of training, eight areas of training that were mandatory for all ninja schools. That's how I know. Right? So, but what if that doesn't work? Well, then we move to de-escalation phase number two, which is dissuasion. Now it is confrontational. 
I let him know in no uncertain terms. And that could be anything from verbal all the way to taking up Kamai and give them that look that you may, you may win, but you're going to freaking remember me for the rest of your goddamn life. Right? But the whole idea here is I know what you're up to. It's not going to be easy. This is your last chance. Okay? Or as the Kukishinden would say very simply in the scroll, you take one step back and then you kill him. Well, at least you kill his intent, right? So that's five phases. Then phase six is if all that fails, then I have to physically do what I need to do to hopefully survive this situation and go home and hug my wife and kids and, or at least call my kids because they're now out in the world, right? Let them know. Instead of saying, hey, dad survived whatever wildfire, hurricane, or whatever, because these things pop up on Facebook or whatever, this person checking in safe, you know, in the wake of whatever. Uh, hey, you know, just in case you see a news story or whatever, dad's fine, right? Uh, whatever, okay? Well, you said eight phases, right? That's only six, okay? Phase seven, PTSD recovery, okay? You're going to have an adrenal response, okay? No matter how cool and fun things are in the dojo, I can promise you, through experience, more than once, okay, the system will be backfiring on itself in an attempt to protect itself in one or more ways after that incident is over. Okay? Whether it's clarity of thought, emotional numbness, anxiety, whatever, um, trauma is trauma, okay? And But the reality is we've got to get to some sense of normalcy as quickly as possible because family still needs us, world still needs us, still need to make that paycheck to be able to pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever, right? Um, so we've got to be able to recover that thing or we've got to be able to recover from that part of the attack where the attack now isn't any outsider dog person, people, whatever, it's now me attacking me mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever, right? It's my body short-circuiting, right? And then phase eight is defending against the legal system, but it could also be policies at work. It could be other people's perception. Or it's, I have it as a legal defense, but what it really is is recovering from Forces outside of yourself, right? So it's a pretty cut and dry list. It's a it's an escalating scale. If you recognize what it is, right? Phase one, general awareness. There is no danger, right? Where I mean, the danger is out in the world. We're planning for making sure we can handle the most common attacks, these kind of situations, whatever, right? And then from situational awareness, where there's no perceived threat, but we're on the lookout. To it's there, it's a good idea if I just beat feet and get the hell out of here, to I can't do that, to I'm going to try to distract, to, to sway, right? It's an escalating scale, okay? So on the face value, the omote, right, for achievement of success, here's this outline that tells you 
have skills. Each one of these phases is an opportunity to to avoid or evade or escape from or neutralize the threat or physically handle it, right? Each one requires a different skill set, right? Understanding what I should be looking for, skills for escaping, evading, whatever it is, right? It could be verbal, it could be physical, whatever. There's assessment. There's I need to know when, like assessment. There's an assessment skill in the de-escalation phases, right? I need to be able to assess, can I get, since I couldn't escape, can, do I even have the opportunity for distraction? Or are we already in a situation where I, I need to go straight to dissuasion? Because while it's linear in its layout, and the ideal is if we have the opportunity, here are five, four opportunities before I have to come to physical blows with this guy, right? Four opportunities for resolving this situation. Still self-defense. But the reality is if I'm walking past, you know, parked cars and this guy just jumps on me, well, then you know what? I'm in phase six, okay? So there's the reality that it's there, but I'm not going to disarm myself by not putting tools in my toolbox to give me the opportunity to make things happen, okay? I'll give you, for instance, on the distraction. I was teaching a class one time, and um, this guy comes in, and he was inquiring about this offer we had, and we had this little A-frame thing out, out in front of the dojo, and he came in to, to see if he could get this thing, and um, I come to find out that he's being treated for psychological disorders and whatnot that could potentially make him dangerous. So what I told him was I needed a letter from his doctor saying that this training, engaging in this would not not create a danger to himself or others. See, I vet things. I'm not, I don't need a student that badly that, you know, well, I trust you. Everybody needs a second chance. Yeah, well, maybe so. However, not putting myself, my family, or my my current students in danger, right? Um, because of altruism, right? You should love everybody. I should, and I do accept everybody for who they are. That doesn't mean I need to leave them, let them wander, or run rampant in my world, right? So he says, okay, he's very nice about it. Please. Now more than 15 minutes later, he comes bursting back in. I want my goddamn classes. Okay. So what I did was I navigated away from the, the class. I had another senior. I said, just keep the class going. Don't, don't stop. Keep the class going. So I meandered over. We had this big wraparound uh, counter for our front desk. And I came behind it um, to talk to him from there. One, I wanted him to feel safe because there was a barrier and I wasn't walking up right to him. Two, I created a barrier between him and I, which made it harder for him to get at me, right, which would slow him down and put him in a weak position um, should he start moving in my direction, okay? But it allowed me to move into these phases. So distraction didn't sound like humor. It didn't sound like, you know, whatever. Distraction was asking him questions that made him think about other things, okay? 
because he started screaming like, I don't need, you know what? I don't need these classes. I can kick all your asses anyway. Oh, well, why do you want to train here then if you can already beat us up? That makes no sense. Well, uh, uh, okay. So that kind of thing, right? I didn't get to dissuasion. Right? I didn't get to dissuasion. Right? He got so flustered that he left and, you know, I guess maybe I did get to dissuasion because I said it's not going to happen. And if you can already kick our ass, you should probably not be here. But if you do want to be here, I'm going to need that letter from your doctor. And I'm going to need it, need it even more now that you've come in here as an asshole than I needed before when you were not like this. He never came back. But right, this guy came in to challenge and to fight. But right, so, but again... All of these things require skills. The PTSD recovery is going to re- require learned skills long before you get to that point. Right? This is not a bridge you cross once you get there. Because if your system is backfiring on you, mentally, emotionally, and physically, it's not going to be easy to learn new skills to apply to that when your system is fucking short-circuiting. You learn those before you need to apply them. Okay. Same thing with you set up your freaking legal defense and and understanding what phases you may have to go through and at least pre-planning what you can before you get there so you're not caught with your fucking pants down. Okay. It's no different than defend, learning to defend against a punch or a stab or whatever. Right. So on its face, it's skill sets, right, handling these things. Right. But the UDA of this framework is it's controlling failure. The first set of controlling failure is having eight phases, four pre-phases, because I'm not going to count phase one. That's the general awareness thing. All of that counts. Um, but at least four phases before the physical defense, giving me an opportunity to make this shit go away so I don't end up with legal liability. I don't end up in jail. I don't end up in the morgue. My kids don't, have to, you know, get to call somebody else dad, whatever. I mean, I've already got a couple of divorces and have uh, my kids calling other people dad, but not my fault because I'm not in the world. They still get to call me dad, right? So I'm already controlling failure by not being blind and forcing myself, trapping myself in a situation where I don't even begin to think about self-defense until shit's already flying at me. Okay? So that's there. But every phase is both an opportunity for the achievement of success and the fallback for when the one before it failed. Okay? If escaping to safety fails, and I'm nose to nose, I'm face to face with this guy, I can try distraction things. Okay? I don't care if it's pleading for my life, whatever. Okay? I know. We're warriors. We don't do that. Well, it depends. Okay? How armed is he? How many of them are there? What conditions are you in? This is not just a matter of, like the kata shows, he punches, you do X, Y, Z. It's not that simple. And for those who have made it that simple, a lot of them 
are pushing up daisies and a lot more of them are looking through bars. So, okay. But each one is both an opportunity for the achievement of success and it's also, by default, a... Um, a way to control failure, to recover from failure. For those of you who have been following Nijutsu for a long time, you've probably heard the phrase out of the Togakure school that if a ninja has to draw a sword, he's already lost. It's not just your sword. If we have to use our self-defense techniques, we've already lost. We We weren't invisible. We've been detected. We were trapped. We were forced into a situation to reveal ourselves. Okay? So I'm not just talking about up to phase six. Right? Everything else has failed, so now I have to defend myself. Phase seven. PTSD. Okay? Is the price of failing to mitigate a self-defense situation before it came to physical blows. Because now I need to recover from that damage. And I need to recover successfully from that damage. Phase seven, right, is failing to not get to six or failing to not do six in a way where my techniques were hidden or I, even before that, set myself up in my community to be known by law enforcement and influential people as somebody who doesn't get into fights. If I have to physically defend myself and my family, I was pushed into something, and this is absolutely a self-defense doctrine situation. Or the way I finished those self-defense moves falls under the self-defense doctrine where I'm not going to be – it started out as self-defense and it turned into – you know, involuntary manslaughter, it turned into um, whatever, because I can I can articulate and I can justify that that was the minimum I needed to do to affect self-defense. I did not go beyond that, right? That's my defense, that's, right? If I'm defending myself at phase eight in the legal system, I failed somewhere else, okay? So controlling failure is not just, well, I'm not going to engage in anything where I might fail. Well, that's going to be a pretty freaking boring life. It's recognizing where things can go wrong. It's understanding. So I'm going to flip this back, talk about those uber successful people, Um, whether it's sports, People, Michael Jordan, there's, there's a big poster from when he was, uh, you know, a major basketball player and whatnot. Um, and it's actually titled, uh, uh, I'm a Failure, something like that, right? Something like that. And then it lists how many free throws he missed, how many shots he took, and whatever, right? It has this whole list, and it says I'm a success because I failed this many times, right? But it shows you how much work he did, right? That kind of thing. Um the the uber successful people that I know, um, what year was it? Maybe 
last year, 2022, I think. At the beginning of the year, there was this big news article. It was an interview with Warren Buffett. I mean, I don't care what you think of him. I don't care if you like him, don't like him, whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't change the point. The point is that Warren Buffett had 22 ideas for what he could do to increase his level of success and whatnot in 2022. This was either at the end of December or the beginning of January that he had. But what he did was he whittled it down to five. Okay? And by the time this interview was published, he had already executed on those five. He threw these things out. Right? And what he was looking for was the one or two or three that caught on and were going to be successful. And he was looking for the ones that were fizzling out. And what he was looking to do was cut the ones that were not working and he was going to double, triple, and quadruple down on the things that were already working. Okay? See? Four right efforts. I'm going to generate the positive. I'm going to increase the positive. Right? I'm going to eliminate or minimize the negative. I'm going to avoid the negative. Okay? So there were 17 of those 22 things that... Mm, not sure based on time or the amount of time to put things together or get them into motion or whatever. She's going to get those off the table, right? So now which ones do I eliminate or minimize? I don't know yet. Which ones do I increase? I don't know yet. Okay. What I'm going to do is generate a bunch of momentum. I'm just going to toss them out there, see what starts to happen. Right? Those with the most options in any given moment, have the greatest chance of success. Okay. So, let's see what else I had on here before we wrap this thing up. So each phase, we'll go back to the eight phases. Each phase is a chance to prevent things from getting worse. Uh, is a chance to end the problem here. So we got that already. But each phase is also the answer to the what if the previous one failed to work. We get that. It's like the yin yang. Right. Um, uh, baby lessons look at opposites. Right. When you look at a yin yang, right, the, the baby lessons look at, well, they're opposites. Right. But masters know that both of those things are happening at the same time. Okay? So that's a hidden kind of thing. Right. So even the negative. Right. Going back to the Wiley Coyote analogy. Right. I don't need to change the whole fucking thing. I don't need to spend more money and throw it at Acme to get a whole new mouse trap or roadrunner trap. I need to look at what just failed. Fix that. Go at it again. You know what? That one's not going to fail. Now I'll find the next weakest link. If, if something else fails, I fix that. I go at it again. Sooner or later, I'm going to catch the damn roadrunner because the trap will have worked. Right? <laughs> uh, let's see. So what we're looking at here is this is the level of the strategist, which is why this whole title of this was the art and strategy of controlling um, controlling failure. The level of the strategist, the one who uses techniques to get the work done and tactics to get the work done easier. Okay, Techniques are swinging the hammer or moving the saw blade. Tactics are how the tools are moved to conserve energy and speed up the completion of the task successfully. Okay. Um, strategy is answering the questions. 
what are we building? Where is it being built? What has to be done to prepare for the building? What's our budget, time frame, supply list, or whatever look like? Okay. The technician using the hammer only wants to know what the hell needs to be nailed to what and where. The strategist, a whole lot more going on. The manager measures progress, cost, that kind of stuff. The strategist manages the vision of the completed work. Technicians don't care about either of those two. Strategists care about the finished product. Tacticians are the bridge between the two. Technicians, just tell me where you need the hole. When you need it done by, I'll I'll do my best. Because they know they're getting paid for overtime too, so whatever. But the manager wants to make sure there's minimized overtime. Why? Because there's a certain budget. We're only getting paid so much for this particular project. If you guys can't get it done on time, yeah, you're getting your overtime. Meanwhile, you're bleeding the company dry, and then you're going to be pissed off when we had to fold. Well, no big deal. You'll just go find another job. Meanwhile, we mortgaged our house and our lives and, and whatever, and we have loans out the wazoo for all the equipment and shit you're using. So we're going to lose our shirt. But who really has the freedom here? Is it the fat, rich business owner who's manipulating and cheating everybody because they're not paying them enough? Or is it the person who is only going to lose a job? They can go get another one. The other one could lose what? Again, the strategist thinks bigger picture to smaller. The tactician thinks about how to make this big picture happen by controlling and making sure the right things are being done down here. The one down here, they got one job, which is why we all get, always get pissed when we order unsweetened iced tea at the fucking drive through window and they hand you sweetened tea. They had one goddamn job, but they want a higher paycheck. If I can't, if you can't get it right, giving me the right damn tea at the window, why would I trust you with more responsibility? And why are you deserving of more money? Well, I can't live on this amount. Well, then either up your freaking skills so that you are, or go get trained to do something that requires more responsibility. Because any monkey can be paid to pour fucking uh, unsweetened iced tea into a cup. That's my take. Anyway, all right, so the whole idea here is, All of these, they all control success and failure differently, right? They all think about these things differently, right? Whatever, right? So, but how do we control failure? One, we don't just focus on the achievement part. We look at where it can fall apart. And then we prepare. That's why it's called prepare, right? Preparation. We prepare for what happens if this misses, right? During this past weekend, the Comio side, uh, one of my guys, uh, Shoshi Whistler, was teaching a session on Bakto Jutsu. And one of the things that he taught was a basic model that we give people when it comes to drawing a sword. And uh, you can do it with the sword out. But Bakto Jutsu is EI, drawing and cutting or sword work in actual combat. So uh, while you can just draw the sword, cut the arm, go to another target, whatever, um, the model, the basic, basic model is moving your body to a certain angle. So when you draw that sword and you cut the wrist, right, on one hand, disarming, right, not that he can't use the sword because he can stab you with the, you know, still has it with the other hand, 
right? But the boshi, the tip of that sword, is already pointing at the shoulder pocket of the of the opposite arm. So it's a matter of touch, stab, same line, minimum movement. I've disarmed both arms because I cut the wrist connection of one, which makes that hand inoperable. And I've run through the brachial plexus, the shoulder of the other arm, rendering it incapable of getting at me, right? And then as I retract, I can finish him or I can not or whatever. But <clears throat> it's strategic. Any monkey can cut the wrist. Any monkey can stab the shoulder or any other part of the body. But what will do the most with the least amount of effort and where do I need to be standing to be able to do both of those equally in half a second? Okay. That's, that's the difference, right? And mitigating failure. Well, what if I miss his wrist? Doesn't matter. The technique gets the sword out as quickly as possible. I may miss the wrist. I may hit his armor and no cut occurred, but the next one's right in front of me. And so it's like chess. Right. Instead of thinking about step by step, step by step in kata, which is necessary at a certain level. Right. But strategic is the guy who's already every move has is already based on the next move or two or three. It's not just an individual move. Right. And people don't control failure well. Or people that don't have their their risk averse, right? It's all good as long as everything is good. Like you know, I can only train because the conditions are right. I can't train because I don't have the time. I don't have the money. Um, this or that's wrong with me or whatever. No, there's always something you can do training wise. If you're not doing anything, then <laughs> then there's nothing, right? But th this idea uh, that I started with, with failing forward, right? Failure is an inevitable part of mastery. Right? There's this this idea of of narakurobi uh, aoki uh, that came up over the weekend as well, right? Seven times down, eight times up. It's it's the formula. It's, it's this Japanese uh, saying that a lot of people say it points to their idea of resiliency and whatever, but no, it, it points to the formula for success, right? Successful people are the ones who got up one more time than they fell down. It has nothing to do with seven or eight. It has to do with the falling down. But I was pointing this out to James earlier. Uh, I pulled out this Daruma because that we were talking about that during the weekend as well. You know what a Daruma is? Well, I have one, one earlier. Do I have one in my office here? Shit. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's a red ball-headed, not bald, ball, right? It's this round kind of thing. Um, the one that I had shown James, and I, I showed uh, students during the weekend, is it's weighted on the bottom. I would say it's the original Weeble, right? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down, okay? It can be knocked over, okay? But the way the bigger ones are made is they're weighted on the bottom, okay? Because... It's a demonstration that of the seven down, eight up, right? You can push it over, but as soon as you let go, because of the way it's designed, it pops right back up again. 
you can slap it over. It'll pop right back up again. Okay. But here's the secret. Here's the hidden part. There is something about the nature of that Doruma that doesn't allow it to stay down. That Doruma doesn't have to be helped up and it doesn't it doesn't need something else. It doesn't have to will itself to get up or whatever. There's just something about it, right? And this points to us. It's the nature of most warriors, but definitely ninja, because ninjas are warriors. But, mm, okay? There's something about the nature that somebody they get knocked down, they stumble or whatever, there's no thought about, I have to keep going. I have to get up. I have to do this. Okay? Uh, if you watch the movie The Last Samurai, uh, in his transformation, right, Tom Cruise's character, uh, what's the last name, Alderaan, something like that, um, he was training with this uh, one guy in the, in the uh, general's clan that uh, didn't like him very much. But this guy was teaching sword one morning in the Boken. And Aldrin picks it up and he steps in there like he's going to do something. And this guy just beats him into the ground. He gets up, whacks him, drives him into the ground again, right? They're training. This, it's a Boken, but this is a sword, dude. This was a killing cut. He keeps getting back up, right? This guy's opinion, this Japanese warrior's opinion changes about him because he wouldn't stay down. He doesn't know he's not supposed to be getting up, but it's in his nature. I'm not dead yet. I'm back up, right? Um, we, we see this in, in uh, movies sometimes. There was, I, remember the, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was a James Bond movie where um, the bad guy thought he blew him up and everything, and he shows back up again, right? And this bad guy goes, why don't you just die? Right? It's just not my nature, right? The goal is not accomplished yet, and the goal is your ass is either in jail or pushing up daisies, whatever it is, right? Um, but these kind of things show up, and what's funny is that we're attracted to these. There's a part of our nature that's attracted to that, right? I want to be that, no, here's our chance. But there's a process. Enlightened masters before us on the Budo side and on the Mikyo side have both laid out frameworks. Here's how you control failure. And controlling failure is exactly the same. It's the hidden side of achieving success. Right? We did the GOMA, New Year's goal setting thing this weekend and no it's not on video for anybody that pre-ordered the videos right that is a you're here for it or you're not um who knows i may do a program at some point where people have to sign on live but it won't be recorded because it loses something if you're just watching it and i know there's some other teachers my first teacher probably has one of these things out there it, it doesn't it doesn't have the same power right but Part of that, part of that process 
is in visualizing the goal and visualizing the steps necessary. But the other half of that exercise is in recognizing and committing to not letting external and internal limitations and inhibitors from stopping that thing from happening. Right? The point is, is that you cannot work on the achievement of success without simultaneously controlling failure, without being mindful of and managing those things that could actively or conspire to stop you. And that includes you. One of my students today mentioned how significant this thing was. She said she almost cried during the during the um, the uh, actual Goma ceremony. Um, she called it humbling. Right. And um, you know, but it's just another one of those pieces of training that that points to the you 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 you. You've always wanted it to be about you. Well, congratulations. It is. Everybody, everybody wants to be the superhero, but very few want to work the process necessary to become the superhero. Right? Everybody wants to be the rich guy, but nobody wants to get up that early. Nobody wants to work that late. Nobody wants to uh, not be binge watching Netflix. Whatever. Okay? It is what it is. Okay? All right. Uh, that's what I have. Questions, comments, complaints. You know me. I've got broad shoulders. <laughs> the, the only comment was Dave Fletch. He said the emotional damage in the aftermath is so often not addressed. Indeed. Indeed. And even when it is, just like when I, when I covered it now, I only touched on things. Right. If you go back and, and for those of you who've been following Kuden for a while, you know that I've covered it from many different aspects. Right. Like most people are not prepared to lose family over a justifiable self-defense situation. I'll give you for instance. My first wife didn't understand all this training, that kind of stuff, right? But she was married to a military cop. She felt safe. She felt protected, that kind of thing. She knew she was safe. Um, I had gotten out, gotten out for seven months because I was trying to cross over from military to civilian law enforcement. And the job market was just saturated. I mean, I, I, I'm from East Central Pennsylvania, and I drove deep into Virginia to take a test for a police officer position. They had two positions open, and I was one of 300 candidates taking a test that day. And you got extra points for being military, that you know, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, 75% of the people taking the test that day got those points. So there was no benefit, right? But anyway, seven months later, I went back in. Uh, but during that seven months... Um, at one point, 
we stayed with friends. We were going to be renting an apartment. It was needed to be cleaned up. It wasn't quite ready yet. So we stayed with some friends. Didn't realize that this guy had anger management problems. And, um, uh, he assaulted my wife and, um, I stepped in and, um, the relationship between my ex-wife and I was never quite the same after that because while she felt safe and she knew that I had skills to watch it happen, she had never seen the monster come out. It wasn't the same. That wasn't what ended the marriage. Uh, but it wasn't the same. So then I've lost friends and things like that because it comes around the corner and there I am putting somebody in handcuffs or whatever and this person's absolutely freaking enraged and whatever and I'm, I'm, you know, this was not a police brutality thing or whatever. This is just, I knew you had skill, but I had an aunt um, who didn't talk to me for years because she found out that I, you know, was telling a story about, you know, this, this one situation and whatnot and this guy, because he was a bodybuilder and whatnot, um, I ended up having to apply a Musha Dodi to him and blew out his shoulder to incapacitate his ability to get at me. When she found out that I broke another human being, she never thought that this nephew, right, flat out told me, I, I, I can't be around violent people. I'm sorry. I love you, but I, I don't want to ever see you again. That didn't last too long, but I don't think people understand that. So when I say PTSD recovery, I'm not necessarily talking about the fact that you got traumatized because you got jumped. It'll happen. Or you got traumatized because you damaged another human being and all the conditioning that came before that punched you square in the face or the throat or the heart. Not necessarily talking about that. Nothing quite like the trauma of loved ones being terrified of you because they went from feeling safe to not feeling safe, even though the demon wasn't aimed at them. It was, it was highly directed toward fighting evil. And they can't split the difference. That's a whole different type. Hopefully you can hear it in my voice, but that's a whole different type. And so while I would never, I would never take back my actions because other people would have been significantly injured. And who knows how many other, other people would have been damaged after that fact. there was a heavy cost to pay. So anyway, that being said, we're over two hours. We should probably stop this, but what else you got? So absolutely, Dave, you're right. It's a heavy toll. That was the only thing that came in. 
Okay. All right. Well, uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, my plan for next week. Now, there's a couple of things coming up. Um, I will be flying solo for uh, a session or two. James goes on vacation on the 13th. Uh, he's going on a cruise for 14 days. You guys don't run up for 14 days. Okay. So for uh, next week and the week after, let me look at my schedule here. We just talked about that tonight. Uh, 15th. Uh, yeah, I'll be flying solo on that one. The 23rd, my wife and I go on vacation. We're only going for 10 days, but James and I, things overlap. So that's going to, uh, we're right now recording and trying to get a bunch of lessons ahead. Um, there will be a coup den next week. I will endeavor to do one on the 20, on the 22nd. Um, there may only be like a, I say only, but we may, uh, just schedule things to run like on the 22nd and the 29th, either pre-recorded or we'll do one from the vault or whatever, just so we can keep the consistency up. Um, but there will be a shift in, uh, how things are delivered, uh, to get things out there to everybody over the next, uh, well, basically three weeks. Okay. So, uh, we'll still have some things going and still have some things, uh, going, but the, the big thing that we're focusing on now is those of you who are in the, in the full on programs, um, you'll have your lessons, uh, you know, coming out, uh, on schedule and, and, uh, to the best of our ability, but we're getting all that stuff set up ahead. So it'll happen. So next week, James won't be on. I'll be flying solo with that one. 22nd. Uh, if I do do one, it'll probably be from a, hotel in the New York, New Jersey area because our ship sails out of New York. Um, so I'm not sure how we're doing that one yet. My wife and I plans aren't set in stone yet, but, um, 29th, that one will probably, uh, that, not probably that one definitely will be uh, a recorded version. Although James will be back and he'll be doing, um, be making sure that the Monday, uh, Q and a thing, the virtual class for the people in the, uh, tactical warrior program, uh, you have your stuff. Uh, I think the only class that, uh, you'll just be dealing with one of my guys at the dojo, um, since a Yerger, uh, will be the 22nd. So anyway, bunch of stuff going on. Uh, we are in the process, the, the new calendar for the years going up and all that. So, uh, I'll be planning out, uh, some upcoming uh, seminars and training. We're going to get back on track with moving the survival stuff. Uh, gun training this year, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we're going to be keep, uh, continue to move forward with the, uh, the training for Mikio and whatnot. I know there's a lot of people that want to do that. Uh, there will be one more opportunity uh, to do a program that will be kind of a bridge program, but it's going to be heavy on the more on the Mikio side than the prerequisite side. So uh, with that program moving forward, uh, people will be able to enroll in them, but they will have to take an exam from me before they're allowed to enroll in the program. So you don't have to have done my first seven steps program, Ninja Mind, Sanji Shichi Dobon, or any of the prerequisite programs, but you will have to pass test on those things that you have to know. Because otherwise that shit's just going to look like woo-woo magic mumbo jumbo bullshit. And I, one, as an initiated lay teacher, I am prohibited. I have taken a vow of not allowing people to just get that stuff because, right, that's irresponsible. 
And, and when I say it's like putting a loaded gun into a baby's hands, I'm not kidding. Right? Um, but also, for anybody who doesn't have the prerequisite training, it's going to take too much to help people understand certain things moving forward. I should have to just be able to say, this points directly to that. This points directly to that. This point, And people will know what we're doing so we can focus on the lesson at hand. Okay. So if you have not gone through those, um, what we will end up doing is opening the doors on a do-it-yourself kind of thing uh, that will have some uh, email coaching and, and whatnot along the way for people to go through some of those programs before they get to that stage. But uh, we're going to be doing one on the Goshin Bo, the psychological self-defense, which is a Kuji precursor. We're going to be doing one on something called the Sadhana of the 13 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which is a uh, literally walking the path through active and reflexive uh, activities moving through that path of enlightenment, um, both externally and internally. Uh, these are both prerequisites or not prerequisites, but but kind of lighter courses. I say lighter um, <laughs> tongue in cheek. But anyway, um, before you hit full on uh, and if we were to do Kuji, I would be doing a single program. I mean, I'll do a, I'll do an overview program on the Kuji. That'll be like a 10,000 or, you know, 10,000 foot overview kind of thing. Um, but then each level would be like the folks that are going through a 16 week program now with the first seven steps. These programs would be eight to 10 weeks each on, you know, one on a one on kill, one on, um, that they're, they're that full. This is not a, this is not a, uh, a light thing. And again, you know, everybody wants to do it until they jump in uh, and then they realize a lot of hard work or this conflicts with my desire for the world to work a certain way or my beliefs about myself or whatever. And you know, it's kind of like the, the, the guy in the matrix movie who was, you know, jacking himself into the matrix so he could talk to the agents um, so he could be a traitor to the other group because he just wanted to be reinserted back into the matrix and didn't want to have to think about it, remember it, whatever, right? The whole rule of thumb is, you know, you take the red pill and we'll show you how far things go. Take the blue pill, wake up tomorrow morning, tell yourself anything you want. Okay? And it really does come down to that. So, Anyway, uh, anything else, James? No, sir. Nope. All right. In that case, I will talk to everyone again next time on Kuden. Get more of Kuden Radio. Subscribe through your favorite podcasting site or join our clan of serious modern warriors at OnlineNinjaAcademy.com.